Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. We're here with Sven Leinartz of Umber to talk about hey product design and user experience. How's it going? Hey, hey. It's going excellent. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Thanks. So I was looking through your design portfolio uh, a little while ago before we got started here, and I noticed that you did some work for DataCamp, and we actually had hmm. an interview uh, with Jonathan Cornelis in there. And I think that's an interesting place to get started, talking about what you do as a product designer and UI UX designer. So can you tell me just a little bit about the work that you did for DataCamp? Sure. Um, so Data Canvas is, is a pretty interesting story. Um, so basically they don't have an in-house uh, designer at this stage. So they're also Belgians. And they're selected for the Techstars class this year in, in New York. And it was kind of funny because I was still working in New York. And I heard from another friend that the, uh, Jonathan and his team were coming in town. And that's how we met up and started talking. And I basically started chatting about specifically UX and conversion optimization to basically improve products for startups. And um, that's how we ended up working together. So in that short time frame, I had a chance to work on on their site as it stands today and um, some email campaigns and some, some rough time work here and there. It was really interesting because it was during my freelance career, I've, I've pretty much always worked with American clients. And this was uh, one of my first true Belgian clients I worked with, all being on American soil. So it was a really interesting project. So what's your take on having a full-time designer versus contracting out? Do you always need a full-time designer? That's pretty interesting. I do have a kind of a clear opinion on that. I think for most startups, if you just raise the seed round, I think it's smarter to work with a contractor until the point that you've ra- uh, raised around A, and I think that's the moment to start building your in-house design team. Specifically because initially, when you're starting a product, there's not a tremendous amount of design work involved yet in getting your MVP kind of out of the door. And basically, once you actually you know raise around A, and there's a tremendous amount of focus on getting traction and converting users... I think that's the point where there's actually enough work for a full-time designer to focus on these kind of things. But it's it's always a little bit challenging because preferably you try and find profiles which combine both. I mean, everyone labels themselves as a UI slash UX designer these days, but unfortunately there is only a little fraction of that of people who actually know how, you know, what user experience is and what it entails and how to focus on that specific portion of design and think about conversion and retention and actually improving products specifically from that perspective. But if you can find kind of the unicorn designer who knows a little bit of everything, also a little bit about business goals and user goals and that kind of stuff, you know, those are kind of the profiles that you want to get on board full time because they can bring a tremendous amount of value to your startup. 
But, you know, if you're still dealing a little bit with trying to find funds, it's often better to kind of hire individuals who are experts in very specific segments in the industry, for example, a growth hacker or a UX designer, to kind of, you know, let those people do what they're really good at, even if at that stage it's, it's a, it comes at a bigger expense, but it will help you a lot to get to a point where you're able to raise more money and build a better product. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So let's say that I have an app idea and I'm serious about going ahead and going through with it. What should I figure out at this point before going out and either talking to a designer or talking to a developer? What are those first steps? I think kind of the starting point is actually think about the idea in itself and if an app is the right solution for that. Because the problem with building products and specifically kind of the app industry that stands today is it's becoming an extremely saturated market and it's incredibly difficult to actually build a viable business in, in this space. So I think the first step is kind of analyzing where your idea fits in, in the app market industry today and how you think you can, you know, make a significant impact in that industry. Because unfortunately to be able to make an app profitable and actually a viable business, you need to have a, significant traction and some really good ideas for monetization. Now, if it's more of a side project and you just want to kind of try something and mess around, um, I would, you know, then you can just go ahead and start speaking with people straight away to kind of get their inputs in these kind of things. If you're really serious about building a startup, which is an app, just by the nature of it, I would really inform myself on reading other stories of people who have built apps before and, and getting to know the industry as a whole a little bit better and how monetization works and how working with teams work and just in general understanding that building an app can get expensive really, really quickly. Uh, and that, you know, if you want to pull this off successfully, that um, you will definitely probably need outside funding first and foremost. And freelancers will only carry you a while, but it will be tremendously smarter to to start thinking about hiring your own team sooner or later to kind of reduce the expenses of, of building a product. And if all of that stuff doesn't scare you yet, then, you know, definitely go ahead with it and try with it. And it's okay to to find these things a little bit scary. But yeah, my, my general advice is, is just, you know, think twice about these kind of things and make sure that you surround yourself with, with people who know this industry and are experts in what they do so that you don't make very expensive mistakes, especially, for example, in technically building a product. Um, you can make some, some some really expensive mistakes early on. And, you know, what you want to try and avoid is that, you know, you don't have that learning curve initially, but you basically surround yourself just with clever people who who will be making the right decisions together with you so you can focus on just building a great product. So what kind of things do you think I can do then inexpensively that are lower risk that allow me to actually go out there and see whether or not an app is the right thing to be doing for the problem I'm trying to solve? First and foremost, I think when when people have a product idea, they immediately see their, their big vision in front of them, as in, this is a big cliche, but people immediately kind of see, you know, how the next Facebook could look like or how... You know, they can build a better product than Snapchat, for example. Um, and, and I think the, the challenge with that is that, you know, building kind of the vision for a product you have is will take years and will take a lot of money. And you should try and scope this down to something which is, you know, very manageable. 
uh, and actually tests the core assumptions of your product and, and kind of the core features of your product, which is, um, you know, as in the industry, we specifically know is a minimum viable product. Um, and I think what's what's interesting about this is that often when you look at the most successful products on the market is that, you know, initially when they started out, there was one core differentiator or one core feature which made them stand out. For Instagram, it was filters. For Snapchat, for example, it was that, you know, messages um, disappeared forever. And, you know, for Facebook, it was just the fact that people were able to connect effectively with each other. Typically, it's just this one thing. And for your product idea, if you have a good product idea, it's also this one clear thing where you see opportunities. And you should focus every single effort, as in both money and both time-wise, on building that one single thing and putting that out on the market and testing, okay, do people really care about this? Because if you do this one single thing very successfully, then you've basically, you know, earned enough of a right to start expanding the product and start thinking about other features. So I would say that's kind of the the biggest mistake that first-time founders make is immediately trying to do it all, while the hardest thing in startup world, or so to speak, is doing one thing really, really successfully. Right, and so what you're talking about there is this idea of the UVP or unique value proposition that your product has. Yeah, correct. And I think kind of the, the, the challenge with finding that is once again, because there's such, you know, a saturated market out there is that it's, it's actually really, really difficult to sometimes come up with that, with what that proposition should look like. And if, if users also really care about it, it's a little bit different when it comes to apps versus um, rep products. And I think the, the best example to give is just look at your own daily behavior um, on your smartphone. We, we only really use a certain amount of core apps on a daily basis, but other products we rarely use. So for example, I mean, the typical kind of apps which are, are being used a lot of the times are, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, phone. Those are kind of the core products which somehow, you know, fill a gap in our lives, which we'll need to fill. And other products, for example, are apps we might have install, installed, but only check every now and then. I think TimeHop, for example, is a great example of that. Serving games are, are a good example of that. So it's getting that retention right of, of getting people to come back is very, very difficult. And uh, to give a one very specific example, I worked on a product which was a, a social media app. And despite it, it really getting significant traction early on, and then we're speaking about about 50,000 users, the actual retention percentages of that after, let's say, two months, we're speaking about single digit percentages which is kind of the nature of building apps, like getting users to keep using the product, that user retention problem is a lot more significant than getting the initial traction, which is why even if you you know have a successful product right now or you got a significant traction right now, um, you're still not a clear you know winner or building a viable business. So it kind of explains how difficult this industry has become in comparison to, let's say, five years ago or so. Right. And similarly, though, there are products out there that certainly don't fit within the, you know, we need daily, you know, active mm-hmm. users of a certain amount, like TurboTax, for example. TurboTax mm-hmm. is perfectly happy to have engagement once a year. So obviously your engagement metrics need to fit with whatever your product is trying to do uniquely well. Yeah, totally. But I think the issue with that is that most startups in the app space uh, specifically are typically either social apps. Sometimes we see utility products, 
But unfortunately, it's always kind of heading in that social space, which is unfortunately kind of the most difficult segment to build viable businesses in. But absolutely, if you you know if you're building a utility product, which for example helps with taxes, you know, and you can charge enough for that, and people buy it once a year, of course you can build a viable business on that. But that product specifically, then that you need to actually work with yearly release cycles, and also you know build a viable product which brings enough money uh, into your business so you can survive a year. So you're every single time you're building a runway of another year. Uh, which I think theoretically is a very interesting product to think about because it, it has its own set of challenges versus a product which, for example, tries to get as much engagement as possible. So we hear the word MVP thrown around a lot. It's almost become a, a buzzword these days. Mm-hmm. What are the biggest mistakes you see when people are trying to define their MVP? I think basically, so minimum viable product, people often get both the minimum aspect wrong and the viable aspect wrong. I think to start with the minimum aspect, which actually ties in with the viable aspect really, really well, is that thinking about building an MVP is basically saying no to every single feature, which is not a core requirement to make sure a product is viable. So what does that mean in in human speech? Is that basically if your feature is not proving anything, whether your product is a good product or not, you just throw it out. So I think the best example, and out of my own experiences, that's often kind of the features which I threw out um, primarily when working on MVPs is if you, I don't know, you build a product and you have a sign-up process, for example, is to just stick with Facebook login, for example, even though you would love to support, you know, email login and actually supporting other uh, sign-in mechanisms so you don't, you're not forcing people to pick one thing. It doesn't really matter for your MVP you know, you're just trying to see if the product you're building is working. So, you know, you throw out all login options except Facebook because that's the quickest and the easiest to build and enough people people will have access to that login mechanism. Another example would be, for example, if you're, once again, building some kind of social product. Let's say you're building Instagram as a MVP. As you, for example, you would kick out commenting because commenting is not a core feature. What you're testing is, okay, will people you know, put filters on their photos primarily. And if that's just the purpose of your MVP and you're just testing that assumption, you can even throw out the whole social component altogether and might release that as a second version of the product. Because at this stage, the only thing you're really testing is the assumption that people will put filters on top of their photos. I think the best example of an MVP is the original version of Snapchat, which, you know, just focused on that basically that single mechanism of disappearing photos and built, you know, a tiny social layer surrounding that to make that mechanism work. And that's enough. Like all other features at that point would be deemed unnecessary because it would distract from your single core focus of the product you're trying to build. So when you're building a a startup or a product, getting that single thing right, that single core feature and building that should be enough for your MVP. And you shouldn't really be focusing on building any extra features until you've proven that with that product, you can actually um, you know, see traction and see people using your product. So do you do much experimentation before a product actually gets out there in the wild up on you know, the iTunes store? It definitely depends on the budget that you're dealing with and the product that you're working on. But 
um, basically even before you kind of lock down what the MVP should be or what the product should be, the first step is just doing your proper research in regards to what the pro- basically the app store looks like today and what products are working or what products exist in the similar vertical that you're going into. So for example, if you're building a dating app, is doing research in regards to the dating apps on, on the app store today and how they differentiate from each other and who, how you're going to differentiate from that. And basically, you know, looking kind of at the market today, you know, nine out of 10 times, you should be saying no to your own product idea because you discover that um, basically what you're trying to build is already being built or is already successful in some kind of way or basically the, the differentiating factor of your product or once again, the unique selling proposition of your product. You basically just kind of get that question right before you even consider building the MVP. And for that, you don't even need to do significant testing. You just need to get that message right because already getting that or finding the answer for that is an extremely, extremely difficult question to solve. But, you know, once you have that aspect and you put something out of the market, then once again, the idea is indeed to kind of get out, get the MVP out of the door as quick and as efficient as possible and start testing on that, basically. But what I've often experienced is basically that testing happens pretty late down the line because you need to give your MVP some breathing room and make sure that you have enough of a marketing going on to actually test if if people will be using um, the product, which is typically like the time span of, I would say, personally, I, I like to use a month kind of as a timeline to see if things work. And if you then notice, okay, we're not getting traction despite thinking that we had the right um, unique selling proposition, okay, that's then where you start experimenting and start, you know, tweaking the product a little bit or approaching the problem from a, from a different perspective and see if that's, you can get a new solution to that in some kind of way. So sometimes we get clients that, uh, they have their list of features, and there's some features that they feel must go in the MVP, regardless of whether they match the core or not. What's your take on this? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is back when when I was working as a product manager. That was kind of the, the story of my life, really. So with every single strategy meeting or building a feature set or you know, at the end of the sprint, there were always new features, which from a client perspective were deemed as being extremely, extremely important uh, and the requirement for the success of the business. Um, well, the, the first step in that is always client dedication. So even long before you start building a product is, is just in general explaining a client the concept of MVP and why, you know, this is the right way to do it. Because the, where we are at today is that startups are becoming al- almost more and more built in a, in a very kind of scientific way because we're at a point now where we have so much data in regards to how startups are created and how startups are built that there are a tremendous amount of best practices in how, you know, how to build a company and how to build a startup. And using MVP as a tool to accomplish that is one example of that. So the first kind of big step is that education process where you explain to a client, like, hey, this is how we're going to do this, and this is why this is the right way to do this. And here are, you know, the million other products who have done this before and done it in a very successful manner. So when that scenario occurs, I always repeat, you know, that initial initial thought process of like, remember, this is why we're doing this and this is how we got here so far. And secondarily is to help 
clients and other people understand that if my responsibility is the product manager or the product owner, it's my job to be balancing both internal and external stakeholders. And that means that more often than not, you're saying no to the client. And when you do so, you remember the client like, this is exactly what you're paying me for, (laughs) is to be the expert when it comes to the product and building a good product. So it's a combination of uh, confirming like, you know, we're, we're pretty sure what we're doing here. And, you know, by actually adding a new feature to the product, we're not necessarily testing what we were supposed to test. And, and secondarily, it's just once again, kind of reiterating um, the theory of how a good product is built, basically. But obviously, it always depends from client to client. And the best, the best product I've worked with or why I believe I, in, in the time that I was working as a product manager, I was a good product manager. It was because you need to be paying careful attention to the personality of your clients and kind of the psychology of humans in general and almost manipulate them in the right direction or help them understand why this is the right way to do so. And there are a tremendous amount of, you know, rational arguments to do so. And if that's not working, then sometimes you need to get in a more emotional direction and manipulate the client basically to get them and help them understand why this is the right approach. So the best product people basically are, in, in that regards, just really, really good communicators who are able to build a careful balance between the client and internal stakeholders and building the best possible product. So, you know, you're talking in great detail about how to get all these stakeholders to agree on what to build. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of challenges sitting as the product person trying Mm -hmm. to take whatever a non-technical client has to say and convert that into something that a developer or a technical person actually knows how to go out and build. How do you formulate that conversation to make sure that what the vision of the product is actually comes full circle back around and is uh, made realized? Yeah, it's always an interesting challenge because basically all these different stakeholders speak a different language. Um, So a technical person and a designer use very different terms versus a marketeer or a client, for example. What I've noticed is basically the best kind of approach for these kind of things is working with a feature set document. So long before you start writing user stories or start designing wireframes or basically dive a little bit deeper in that process, it all begins with a feature set where in basically in plain English, you're just explaining what the vision is, what the product is you're going to be building, what the design vision is, what the business vision is, and also start listing out like what that MVP might be or what are kind of the core features of that MVP. So it's basically a process of, I would say it's about a week with, you know, meeting different people, and starting to formulate that document, and once that document is finished, is basically presenting that to every stakeholder and getting everyone's input on that until the point where you're able to you know, make the final decisions of what's going to happen. Um, because the, the challenging aspect in, in this process is that, unfortunately, because you're always dealing with multiple stakeholders, there will always be, will be people who are disapproving of certain decisions. So a designer might hate that we're using a particular technical library where we'll reduce the, the design freedom that we might have. But, you know, the alternative might be, you know, a solution which will be way more expensive to build, for example. So finding that balance between technical decisions, design decisions, and business decisions is something really, really complex and difficult. But 
basically product people should try and, and aim for that balance as early as that first document. Because if you can get everyone on the same page and everyone on the same vision, it's going to make everything a lot, a lot easier moving forward. Because if you're having these decisions in Sprint 4, for example, and you're already pretty far into the actual product development, you're kind of screwed, <laughs> unfortunately, because it's nature of the product should be defined as early as possible and getting everyone agree on that. Because otherwise you're not working as a team, but you're basically working at as separate entities, each trying to do their little piece of the puzzle well, which shouldn't be the case. Like you need to build products as a team and, and that vision document definitely helps with accomplishing that. So how does that document read then? Does it look like a series of discrete tasks with those vision mm-hmm. statements or is there like a narrative flow that brings everything together? So that's that's pretty interesting. There's no real standard which exists for that i i have a a personal structure which which i always use which so basically it's almost working with bullet points because the idea of this document is that you know this shouldn't be 10 pages long or so it should be a couple of pages max which you know gets the point across even to the depth of features and the way that i structured this document specifically is it will start with the pitch basically just the the one or two sentence pitch of this is what we're going to be building would then basically a section explaining the vision in regards to the product high level design also high level and the business vision also high level and then i would be writing about the product where i would be describing the the information architecture and the technical architecture from a, a high level perspective where you're basically already starting to think about mvp because you're you're starting to list features here and then list out the core features and the final piece of that document should be your actual roadmap or your high-level roadmap for the product because obviously beyond the MVP, you have ideas of what you want to build. Um, and basically, you, can, you kind of summarize that in the product roadmap. So if you're creating Instagram, the features, would, for example, just be basically putting filters on top of photos so while the product roadmap might contain the, hey, I would like to build a community aspect surrounding these photos with filters on and that might be in the form of a feeds and likes and comments and shares for example so despite all of this being pretty high level it should still kind of get the message across of what the mvp is that you're trying to build but also just the vision which everyone should be aligned on and despite it being high level once you kind of have approval on this and you can proceed with this it's you will notice that it's fairly easy to get really in-depth. And for example, if you have a technical architecture or you have features that you can actually work together with developers to you know, start structuring sprints and writing user stories, basically let the technical people do <laughs> what they're really good at and do all the technical stuff. And the same counts for designers and the same goes for, for marketers, for example. So it's, it's creating the foundation in which each expert in your team can take this and basically, you know, focus on their piece of the puzzle and work out their details and present it to the rest of the team. So does that document then end up having like a narrative start and finish to it? Or is that something that, you know, you can just suss out of it, you see when it comes time for you to actually do the wireframes, you have that very visual uh, narrative there. But, you know, is the document itself a narrative in and of itself? Um, Well, it 
in my personal experience, basically the, the document is continuously updated throughout the process. So it's definitely, there is a certain narrative built in as in the product, you know, is being created. It's obvious that things will be changing and you will be changing that as well. The other aspect of the narrative is that because of the nature of the structure of the documents, starting from the pitch going all the way to the actual roadmap of how you see the future of the product, it gives a pretty good idea of, you know, what the next just high level year or two years of the product might be looking like. Because of the nature of the process, you'll be constantly tweaking and making changes. And I think the challenge in the process is that every now and then you're basically, you know, having another chat with your team and sitting around the table and making sure like, okay, are we still all agreeing with this? And are there perhaps some technical challenges that we've bumped in? Or um, is this design direction still working? Because one example that might occur is that some user research has been done by business developers and they come to the conclusion like, hey, that the very serious design style we were aiming for is not really going to work with our audience. We need to make it more playful. And that is kind of the, the moment when you, you know, update the narrative and, and kind of, you know, go over the whole document again, and update whatever is necessary. So it's also a very helpful tool for when new people or new stakeholders or new team members come into the process um, because explaining your vision as a founder or just a product you're building as a founder it's sometimes really difficult to get everything across which is in your mind and this document should help to get a person up to speed in a matter of five minutes of reading these couple pages where everything is outlined from a very high level perspective and then it's kind of the team's goal and objective to take this narrative and build upon it in, you know, in their whatever tools they use or whatever, you know, deliverables they're working on. So, for example, if that's from a, for a technical team, you should, you know, see kind of the in-depth narrative of how this vision or how this product roadmap is, is accomplished by the way that the sprints are structured or um, you know, what the different user stories are or where they see the technical challenges. So I, I kind of compare it to a, a machine where basically this document kind of acts as the mainframe and should be guiding everything. But simultaneously, it's interactive where, you know, one piece of the machine, such as the technical team and, and use who are, you know, managing the sprints and building the products might come back and state like, hey, what we're doing, we should be thinking about this because we need to make a couple of changes here and there. So it, it really is a dynamic kind of living document, which, you know, helps everyone to build the product that, you know, that should be built. So you, I think you have a blog post that touches upon some of these topics. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I wrote uh, I wrote a document how to how to write a feature set, basically, which kind of you know what we've been speaking about the last couple of minutes, basically is a tutorial on how how to write something like that. Uh, what different sections it should contain. And, uh, you know, what the purpose is for it, because this is also, for example, because we've been speaking about it from the perspective of an internal team or, you know, working with clients. But it's also a great document for investors, for example, or could be your foundation for your investor deck or pitch deck, because this narrative that you're building in here is also the narrative which will be returning in your investor deck, for example. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes, too. OK, and I wanted to go back to something you said earlier in the interview, and you said something about bringing on experts in their respective fields when you're early in a startup to avoid expensive mistakes. 
I wanted to get a better sense of what you meant by expensive mistakes. Do you have some examples of kinds of mis- expensive mistakes that people might run into? By the nature of, of building products, it's, it's always going to be that every problem or every uh, mistake will be kind of unique. But to give a very, very specific example is I built uh, a social product on Parse. Um, which is now being run by Facebook. It's basically, basically backend as a service. And the mistake is that as this product was getting traction, unfortunately, Parse became a really, really expensive solution for the problem where we, sorry, for the product we were building. That's an example of not building something scalable early on in, in the product. Simultaneously, and, and that's also my honest opinion, I'm not even sure if I would be classifying this as a mistake because sometimes building a scalable product from day one might be a much more expensive solution than validating your MVP. But specifically, it's it's still something which in hindsight could be avoided. But, you know, there are still a lot of arguments in, in case like, okay, should we have actually avoided it and, and built something scalable from day one? So typically, these expensive mistakes have to deal with technical choices being made early on in the process, especially when it comes to building backend systems and the way that you see these backend systems expanding or growing or just in general scaling on. And by all means, I'm I'm not a very technical person, but I'm fluent enough to understand kind of what's going on from that perspective and, and try and make the right choices in regards to that. But basically, the kind of the to summarize is that, you know, hiring experts means, you know, hire someone who technically knows what they're doing and at least have experience building products before. And, um, you know, actually making sure that when a technical decision needs to be made, that they can give you the different pros and contrasts for each single solution and based on that you make the right solution so the healthy way is that basically you always have a conversation in regards to different technical solutions that you could use instead of you know just picking one thing and going for that and hoping that's the right solution because that's often how you run into trouble yeah we we have a similar story of a technical decision that that went wrong we worked with a client and they had you know they had hired an engineer who built their api in go and when they hit scaling issues, they weren't able to find Go developers because, of course, the Go community is very new. So they ended up having to rewrite their entire backend in Ruby on Rails. It was a very expensive mistake. But simultaneously, it's really difficult to kind of, you know, predict these these things. And like I personally, but, you know, there are arguments for both sides. But as a product person, I always prefer a cheaper MVP over a more expensive scalable solution because you know if you come at the point that you're proven that your product product is successful in your traction, you should be able to raise money. And I personally prefer to kind of hack an MVP together, basically build the proper technical product with the proper technical choices in that second phase when you know when you actually have a decent runway and you're actually building your team. So I actually want to jump back a moment again to something you were talking about earlier in the interview. And you were saying that a good product person is somebody who's able to communicate very well with the client, obviously, mm-hmm. but also is able to you know, persuade yeah. them of things um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that are honestly in their best interest, but you know, may not be precisely what they wanted at the time that you started to persuade them. So mm-hmm. are there any other qualities that you would highlight that would distinguish a you know, especially good product person from a bad one? 
I think I'm telling the story of every single recruiter right now is that finding good product people is, is really, really difficult because at the core of a product position, you need to have a good understanding of three main verticals, as I personally see it, which is business, technology, and design. And typical profiles have a good understanding of two of the three areas. So, for example, they know a lot about design and technology, for example, but lack knowledge on the business side, or they know a lot about design and knowledge, but lack on the technology side. Or what you also typically see is that, you know, they are really good in, in one thing, such as technology or design or business. While to be able to make good decisions in regards to building products, you need to have at least decent amount of knowledge in regards to both technology design and business. And this is the reason why in internal teams, while building products, you will always have conflicts. And as a product person, you're almost living in in your own little bubble in between kind of external stakeholders and internal stakeholders because you are making decisions with the knowledge of all these different aspects which make a good product, while the people you're interacting with might not see certain things. So a designer might not see the technical consequences of a design they created, but as a product person, it's your responsibility to chat with the designer and indicate that that design is not going to work. So that knowledge aspect, as in understanding technology, design, and business, because that's often what's being missed, really, really well, I would say, is, is one of the core you know, requirements for a good product person. Then we have that communication aspect as in being able to communicate the issues of a product or the issue issues of a decision really well. And in in general, that ties a lot with obviously your communication style, but also your general knowledge of how, you know, kind of how human psychology work or how, you know, what kind of is kind of the social behavior of people while building well just interacting with each other and while building products. But you know, what makes it kind of positive for everyone is that it's part of, of this is you will pretty much learn this while doing and you will definitely get better to it in it as you, you know, build more products and, and have the opportunity to work with more people and make more complex products. For example, in all fairness, my knowledge when I originally started as a product manager was a lot less than where I stand today, exactly because I had the ability to, to work on multiple products. And with every single product that you build, um, you gain a lot more knowledge in regards to how the industry works and what makes products succeed or fail for a variety of reasons. So it's a combination of understanding what's going on in the industry Reading a lot of books <laughs> always helps a lot. And experience, just plain experience in, in building products and working with other people. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd certainly like you to share a list of some of your favorite resources with us after the show. Maybe we can put those into the show notes. Absolutely. What, what though, can I do if I want to stretch my skills a little bit? I want to put myself out there and mm-hmm. you know be a little risky without feeling like I'm either... You know, putting a client at risk by giving them advice that I know is not necessarily the most expert mm-hmm. advice or, you know, simultaneously going out and building my own product and risking, you know, a lot of pain and heartache. How do you recommend that somebody goes out there and basically <laughs> takes risks without taking too many? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is kind of interesting because I'm sure every single product person, but also just designers and developers in the course of building a product for someone else have experience is ultimately you also you always see a better version of the product that you're building 
or you see opportunities for the product you're building or you're trying to push it in a particular direction, which is especially the case kind of when you're still kind of in that strategy and feature set phase where you're still kind of trying to figure out what you're building. My first, and that's my plain honest response in regards to, to building your own products. You know, if I had a great product idea, I would be building it, plain and simple. If I would think that I had something which actually has a very, very good chance of succeeding in the industry, I would go for it, without a doubt. Um, but I think part of industry and part of why it's it's kind of funny that product people are rarely building their own products is as you build products, you kind of learn how difficult this industry is and how difficult it is to build your own products. And you're becoming almost super pragmatic about building products. And I'm not sure if that's good or bad because specifically in Belgium, I'm, I'm basically one of the, the design mentors in kind of the, the scene because it's not extremely big here. And whenever I see startups, like I, nine times out of 10, I'm thinking they will never succeed. But that's kind of just because of the nature of thinking about the theory of how products are built and what makes a product successful or not. But don't get me wrong, because product people are also tons of times wrong as well. So, <laughs> for example, a product I worked on, I was against a particular feature. And I really thought it was a bad idea. So obviously I advocated both internally and externally that, you know, let's not do this because it's a, it's a really bad decision. But once the product was completed and the client continued to work on the product and they launched this feature anyway, that was kind of the moment that, you know, things turned around and they started to see, you know, more traction and, and more people coming back to the product. And those are the kind of moments where as a product person, you start to think like, oh, damn, <laughs> I was completely wrong on that. And simultaneously, that makes kind of the whole being a product person also pretty interesting and exciting because it proves how while building products is becoming a science, simultaneously, it's not a science at all. And there's so many random variables at but, you know, as a product person, as your goal is always trying to build the best possible product, obviously, you know, you will always have a slightly different vision about the product than a client has. So by the nature of it, you're always going to be pushing in that direction and trying to build the product that you want to see which is, I think, is kind of the nature of just being a product person and trying to build the best possible product, because obviously you believe in your own beliefs as a product person. But, you know, there have definitely been occasions before where, you know, the product which was being built went in a complete different direction while, you know, you saw some more viability in the initial product. And sometimes there's indeed kind of, you're thinking like, you know, maybe I should take this idea and try and build it. But Ethically speaking, it would be very, very wrong because ultimately this is kind of the intellectual property of a client. And these are just the kind of things that you don't do. You just don't take someone else's idea where you're hired as expert to execute on their ideas and just, you know, build it on your own time. So it's always a little bit interesting in finding this balance between, you know, what your personal goals are, but also what your client's goals are. Right. I think we've had that feeling too. I, I'm pretty sure everybody who's ever worked on a client product has felt like, you know, there was something else that they could have mm -hmm. done better. But totally. you definitely need to fight that urge to go out and build that thing because you're exactly right. That person put a lot of trust and faith in you that you were going to build their product and not then go out and use that experience to try mm -hmm. and make something better. That'd be absolutely absurd. Exactly. And it's, it's kind of interesting because typically at the end of, of kind of every in-game engagement, there's always that little bit disappointment that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't exactly put a product in a direction that where you, you know, put a lot of belief in because 
Ultimately, as a product person, you're always, always kind of trying to build that balance between the different people that you're, you're interacting with. And at the end of the day, it always, you know, comes down to compromises. And, you know, in my whole kind of career in building products or helping products, there has never been a single time that I was able to build a product I want, which to be honest is actually also good because as a product owner, you, you shouldn't be having, you know, too much ownership either. Ultimately, like building products is, is a collaboration with team members. And the more clever people in the room, the better the product is that you're going to be built. And, you know, I think that's also always the challenge I put towards the, the people I was working with was, you know, prove me wrong. Like, you know, I'm more than happy to be wrong in my opinion. If, if you can, you know, give reasonable arguments why I would be wrong. And it also opens kind of your, your vision and your mind in regards to what entails building successful products as well. And personally, I'm also also really happy whenever I'm proven wrong because it just indicates again that, you know, I'm not a product genius and everyone, you know, you can continue to learn about every single decision that you make. So just jumping back for a minute too, you mentioned that you felt like you weren't sure if it was a good or a bad thing that you've noticed all of these products that you feel like aren't going to succeed in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I feel very similar in that I'm worried that I've become cynical at this point. Good case in point, actually, is like I am uh, helping my uh, brother-in-law go to Dev Boot Camp. Um, he's actually mm-hmm. just finishing up his first week there. And he, I think it was a little before Christmas time, uh, had this like product idea that he wanted to share with me. And he, like, you know, I think we were on Gchat or something and he sent it over to me. I didn't respond to him at all because I didn't know what to say because I knew that whatever I was going to say <laughs> was just bad. And then when I came home to visit for Christmas, he was like, Hey, you never responded to me about that. I was like, Yeah, I'm sorry. And then we got into this whole, you know, debate about whether or not you know, he should be focusing on the social product that he wants to build or whether mm-hmm. he should be, you know, because I look back on, you know, my previous experience doing something like that, biting off way more than I could chew uh, and failing miserably. And I'm like, man, if I had started, you know, four or five years ago building products that made money from the get go, then I'd be in a completely different position than I am today. I, I mean, do you worry that <laughs> like having that mindset is going to snuff out innovation with people? I'm, I'm not even sure what opinion to form about this because like, I think indeed by the nature of, of what we do, thinking about products, it's pretty normal to be very, very cynical. Um, and for that exact reason, I try to avoid sites like Product Hunt, for example, because, you know, my job has always been to take, you know, to, to take a look at products and uh, analyze them if, you know, if they could be successful or not and what possible improvements could there be. And it's always a little bit tricky because ultimately there have always been multiple occasions where I had basically I built a very simple um, process and system for myself working with clients is I would repeat my arguments why a particular decision was bad two times. And if a client assisted to continue okay, I would continue. I would go ahead with their vision. Because, you know, for example, if you take a look at Twitter and the initial days of Twitter, you know, every single decent product person would have pointed at the product and stated, this is a really stupid idea. You should stop with it. Uh, and look where Twitter is today. And the same might go for Meerkat, for example, or many other kind of interesting social products where you would state like, you know, this is not going to work, but for some reason it ends up working anyway. Uh, and there is also the case for it is, 
despite being very young and be only being 22, there's already a kind of a, a generational disconnect with what lives, for example, at teenagers and the apps there, uh, where I, I just don't understand why these kind of products are getting attention, such as Tango and, and some other social apps. And it's really interesting how different segments of people interact differently with a product. So despite, you know, trying to apply our best practices, I think there's also a point where, you know, you just need to basically shut up and actually, you know, build a product which a person wants to see built because, heck, they might be successful. And, you know, they might be so crazy with their product vision that it's totally normal that we don't see it becoming successful. But because it is this crazy, it's exactly the reason why it might work. So it's always that that careful balance. You know, I'm I'm glad that you say what you said about not understanding these products because I'm seven years older than you and I'm starting to think that I'm getting like, you know, crazy and like telling all these apps to get off my lawn because uh, I really, I, I don't get the vast majority of like the really popular like social products that are out there for young people. But, uh, you know, I think it's just a generational thing. Um, yeah, like you said. exactly. Like Vine and Meerkat, I have no idea why anybody is using them, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, Vine is, is such an interesting example because it's a product despite being, you know, it's, it's not that older people are not using it, for example, but it has a significant or their significant traction comes from kind of the, the teenager segment. And then specifically, you know, what used to be YouTube famous a couple of years ago is now Vine famous. You have these very famous Viners who, you know, have built a community around their persona or, you know, their style of short video clips that they create. And it's just very, very difficult to understand because it's such a generational thing. And the same goes for Meerkat and even even Snapchat, for example. I'm not a diehard Snapchat user, even though a lot of people around my age use it. And I just, you know, I understand very specific use cases for the product. But simultaneously, there are people who use it more than Instagram, for example, or even Facebook, for example. And that I don't really get that. Um, so it's, it's sometimes it's really difficult to understand behavior, which is why I think why building products in a very data driven way is, you know, more important than trying to trust your gut feeling. I think the gut feeling helps you, you know, from the get go to build MVP. But after that, everything should be data driven and, you know, your gut feeling becomes a lot less important. Yeah, that makes sense. Suppose I'm working closely with a product person, a UI UX person, to build an app. Mm -hmm. uh, what can I do to help them do their best work? Um, well, in, in general, I think everyone should believe in, quote unquote, the process. I think every UI UX person has their own way of doing things or validating things or just creating good designs. And I think that every person should believe in that. And I've noticed it with clients before, and it's also what I warned clients before is, you know, when I'm creating a design, the first couple passes of it, it's going to be pretty bad because, you know, the great designs which you see everywhere, um, you know, have been created because one, there wasn't enough time um, spend on it, and two, there have been countless iterations which we haven't seen 
which we never, which we'll never see even. So in regards to design, it's very normal that the first couple of times that you're interacting with the designer and trying to find kind of the right look and feel and, you know, building a good interface, it's probably going to suck. And that's perfectly okay because building good products requires iteration in that regards. And heck, for your MVP, like design shouldn't even be the core, um, you know, it should, it's not even that important really. It should just be kind of usable and pretty clean, which is pretty interesting because it's also kind of my big rant to the design and the UX community in general is that, have you guys heard about the dribbleization of design? Uh, I think um, it was an interesting blog post uh, written about it. Yeah, I, I did read that post. Cool. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, it's for anyone who's listening and, and, and doesn't know what it is. So basically you have this design community site called Dribble, um, which is I think the most famous one in the design community beyond um, Behance. And it's invitation only. But originally it, it started out as this platform to give feedback for people who put basically work in progress online. So these are little snapshots of designs which should be work in progress and basically people would give feedback on that. But over time, it kind of grew in this uh, actual real design community where people are putting their best work online and it acts more as a portfolio right now. And people also use it as their main source of inspiration. Now, the biggest issue with using this as your main source of inspiration and putting your work on there is that it becomes this vicious cycle because you see the same types of work, you take that as inspiration to design your own thing, and then you put that online for other people to see. So what happens is it's this vicious cycle of basically seeing the same kind of design work over and over again, which is how kind of design trends occur. So the whole kind of flat design, which kind of grew into material design now, like the last couple of years, and that trend is partly the thing because of big companies obviously releasing these design styles, thinking about, you know, Google an app, for example, but simultaneously it's because of these other designers basically using the style and putting that online on, on portfolio sites, such as Rebel. It's just a very kind of interesting movement in the industry. And that's basically sometimes I'm something I'm missing in kind of the UI UX movement and, and the designers in there, because that's also what clients want. It's what clients see and then it's the style they want to go for. For example, like most of my, my recent engagements with clients in regards to design have all been some kind of material design concept because, you know, that's the thing these days. I think, you know, giving more freedom towards designers is also one way of, you know, building better products and making sure that, you know, they can actually use their creativity to build better products and only use kind of these concepts as material design and that kind of stuff just to, you know, get your MVP out of the door. You know, they're really great design frameworks and use them because, you know, it helps to create a, a product which has, you know, a proven interface which works early. But, you know, when the moment comes to build your own brand, definitely, you know, don't limit the creative freedom and understand that it, it, it will take a designer a couple of times for, you know, they design something really cool. Yeah, I think for me, one of the most disappointing things about the dribbleization of design is the fact that it captures such a small slice of what a user's journey through an application looks like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, I mean, yes, micro interactions are neat and the way that there's some sort of like bounce that's happening in this particular interaction is great. You know, like there, there are good things about that, but at the same time, it really is disconnected from the big picture of why it is that we're building products for people. And it's mm -hmm. typically to solve problems and 
give some sort of outcome. And it's hard to see that in most of what gets put up on Dribbble, despite how beautiful things may look. Yeah, totally. I think that's sometimes, I think the which is really interesting right now is more and more designers are moving towards medium and basically writing these case studies, how, you know, design decisions were made and, and how they got to the product where it is today. And I think that's way more interesting than anything which is going on on Dribbble because Dribbble doesn't really show the thought process behind the design. While, you know, case studies being written by designers is, you know, the complete opposite of that. And it's it's always very interesting to see what the thought process was. I agree 100%. Well, Sven, thank you so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure. Uh, again, um, we'd w- want to get from you some of those uh, resources that you've got. Some of those uh, articles you wrote will also go in our show notes on TalkingCode.com. And where can we keep up with you online? The easiest way to keep in touch with me is on Twitter. Um, my handle is Svenlen. Um, you can also put it in the, in the show notes. Um, where I tweet anything related to design, technology, business, uh, and my personal runs while <laughs> dealing with clients on a day-to-day basis. Um, that's just a heads up for, for everyone. Um, <laughs> and otherwise, I have my, my personal portfolio, umber.me, which also links to my Dribbble. I'm also umber on Dribbble, where you can uh, see some of my design work, not some of my thought processes we just talked about. And yeah, I also write for Tuts Plus, which will be linking some articles to you. And uh, I look forward to be publishing some new pieces on some interesting subjects very soon on that as well. Excellent. Well, we look forward to it too. And thanks again and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much for your time, guys. And thank you everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, Go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.